Good morning. It's a joy to be with you, as always. I want to thank the worship team, sound and audio guys, and thank the setup crew. They're so kind, give me this little mini tabernacle, and I am grateful for it. Uh, I know the heat uh, is coming very, very quickly, so I'm just going to pray and we're going to jump right into it. So let's pray. Lord, we're thankful for another morning that your mercies are new. May we look unto you, help our hearts to be right. Help our hearts and minds to be in tune with what your word has to say. Lord, may you get the glory. May you get the praise and the worship, Lord, for you are so worthy. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. This morning we will continue our study on the book of Genesis, looking at chapter 3. Last week we looked at verses 1 through 7, which was all about the temptation. We saw how the serpent, which was Satan, the devil in disguise, Enter into the garden to deceive the woman, to mislead by getting her to partake from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. His main strategy was to cast doubt on the goodness of God, his kindness, to make God look strict, too harsh, uncaring, unloving, and even insecure. Satan also highlighted the rewards and benefits from eating from this forbidden tree, and that it would be good for her to do so. Of course, the father of lies is spreading lies to rob the woman of life and of joy from her God. This is the goal of Satan. This is the method of Satan. Jesus makes this clear in John 10.10. The thief does not come except to steal and to kill and to destroy as it was his goal in Genesis 3, it's still his goal today to destroy. That's why scripture tells us to be on the alert, to be watchful. 1 Peter 5.8 says, be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. The scriptures make it clear that Satan is a liar, that he is a murderer, as God is the giver of life, the joy of life, Satan seeks to destroy life by deceiving people to disobey the creator, to go against him, to see sin as a greater pleasure than God. That's exactly what Satan does in Genesis 3. And as we saw last Sunday in our, uh, in our study, he was indeed successful. The woman believed the lie and she partook. She also gave to her husband, and he ate as well. Verse 7 shows the result of them partaking, their eating. It says in verse 7, Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. It's clear that the result from the eating of this forbidden tree was shame, guilt. It was grief. Once the pleasure of this sin faded away, which, let me make clear, sinful pleasure always withers away. It never lasts. It's never permanent. Once it was gone for Adam and Eve, then sorrow set in. Sorrow rose. Then it says they tried to cover up their sinful tracks by making loin coverings to hide their nakedness. This, of course, was unsuccessful. 
and truly a, a pathetic attempt to cover up sin on their own. For man cannot take away his sin. Only the God-man can. Only Christ can remove our sin in Christ alone. But this is what Adam and Eve did. And the fact they did this raises a question. And that question is, is how are they still alive? Because if we look back at Genesis 2.17, the warning where God says, but from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat, for in the day you eat from it, you will surely die. He says they will eat if they partake from this forbidden fruit, if they eat it. So how are they still alive? Well, that's a valid question with a really simple walkthrough because there is no contradiction here. As we talked about a couple weeks ago, death carries the idea of separation. We can talk about physical death, which involves the separation from the soul, from the body, the spirit from the body. We can talk about spiritual death, which is the separation of a person from God. We can even talk about a third form of death, which is eternal death. This is what happens to a person who dies in their sin, who dies without forgiveness of sin. He is eternally separated from the goodness of God. When Adam and Eve ate the forbidden forbidden fruit that day, they did die. But they didn't die eternally. They didn't die physically as as we see. But rather they died in a spiritual sense. They spiritually died that day. The moment of their sin, they became dead in their trespasses and sins. This is the language that Paul uses. Ephesians 2.1, Colossians 2.13. This language, in fact, is the reality of everyone who has ever lived. It's applied to everyone who has ever lived. That they are naturally dead in sin, possessing a sinful nature, defiled by sin, which they inherited from Adam. This happens at the moment of conception. For David says in Psalm 51.5, Behold, I was brought forth in sin, and sin my mother conceived me. Mankind is stained by sin, filled with an evil heart. Totally depraved is a common term that's applied to it. Now, when we say totally depraved, we're not meaning in degree. But in principle, they are totally depraved because mankind is not as bad as they could be. The common grace of God restrains that. But rather, when we're saying that man is totally depraved, what we're saying is is that the whole person is affected by sin. The whole individual is marred by sin. The mind, the will, passions, motives, heart, all tainted by sin. This is the universal condition of man that they are enslaved to sin. Remember what Jesus said in John 8, 34? Whoever commits sin is a slave of sin. All are spiritually dead. This is how Adam and Eve died that day. And their spiritual death would eventually lead to their physical deaths, as Genesis 5 shows. And it really begins this sad reality 
of what you see in Genesis, like the genealogy, and they died, and they died, and they died. Death is the evidence that sin exists, which is a reminder that death is not natural, as we tend to say it is. They just die, it's just a part of life. But in actuality, it's unnatural. It goes against God's very good design. Death is a disruption. Death is an interruption because it's a reminder that something is wrong, that we live in a fallen world corrupted by sin because man has rebelled against God. Now, what further happens to this man, to this woman, to this couple? How does God respond to their disobedience? Well, for that answer, we need to look at verses 8 through 13 this morning, which is all about the confrontation, the examination. Verse 8, it says, They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Then the Lord God called to the man, said to him, where are you? He said, I heard the sound of you in the garden. And I was afraid because I was naked. So I hid myself. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me from the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. In verse 8, it opens up by saying, they heard the sound of the Lord God. That word sound in Hebrew can also mean voice. Voice of the Lord. This is God speaking, making it known making it clear that he is approaching. In terms of how he's coming, it says he is walking in the garden in the cool of the day. Now, some say, with regards to the walking, how they define that, they say that is what is referred to as an anthropomorphic term. Anthropomorphic term. All of you spell that right now. No, please don't. But an anthropomorphic term, which is simply applying human physical features to God. So this is not God literally walking, but it's a way to highlight the closeness of his appearance. Others will say that this is a theophany, which a theophany is a visible appearance of God. It's a visible form of God, God making himself known that he is there. Others say that this is what this is, a theophany. Others will even go to the point and say that this is a Christophany, that this is God the Son, the second member of the Trinity, the pre-incarnate Christ, walking in the garden, literally walking. I, in fact, would hold to this third view in light of the context, especially of what we'll see next week, that this is the pre-incarnate Christ, who also is referred to in the Old Testament as the angel of the Lord coming in the garden. But either way, what is clear, what we see is that God is there. God is coming. And what's really interesting to know is that it says that God comes in walking. He doesn't come in sprinting. 
He doesn't come in yelling. He's not coming in a forceful way, aggressively, which is fascinating, considering what has just happened. In light of the sin of the couple, God comes in walking. And it's really presented in a casual way, maybe even indicating that this casual approach was a routine one. Hello. A regular one. A usual gathering of enjoyment. A fellowship that normally occurred between God and the couple. If this indeed was the case, this daily event would have been filled with joy and communion. God communicating with those in whom he created. It says there's even a time really for this daily get-together referred to as the cool of the day. We're all dreaming for that right now. Which is another way of saying the breezy time of the day. I know you guys are thinking about the beach right now. This breezy time of the day would seem to point to the evening breeze, which really is the best time of the day in which this time would occur. But the circumstances here, though, are different as God comes. Because instead of Adam and Eve waiting with joy, excitement, anticipation for this meeting to occur, they respond in the exact opposite way. Look what it says. It says, they hid themselves from the presence of the Lord. The man and the woman, because of their disobedience, their rebellion, now are filled with a disturbing sense of shame. So what do they do? They panic. To the point that once they recognize that God is drawing near, they fled. They took off. They hid themselves from God. The one in whom they previously delighted in was now the one in whom they were afraid of. The one in whom they were secure in is now the one in whom they view as a threat. For they lost their innocence. Their childlike trust in God. So now they're even fearful to commune with him. This is the sad reality of sin. For it separates. It always does. It separates you from others, especially those closest to you. Your family your friends, your loved ones. But most importantly, it separates you from God. It alienates you from God. It even distorts your view of God to the point that it makes the sinner despise the presence of the Lord, despise his perfection, for they know the holiness of God will not tolerate their sin. And the light of God exposes the darkness of their sin. For man naturally hates the light, and he loves darkness. Jesus makes this clear in John three nineteen. For men love darkness rather than light, because their deeds are evil. And they don't want to come to the light, lest their deeds be exposed. The true and living God, his word, expose the evil in man's heart. So they naturally flee. Mankind runs from God. Mankind is running from God. Isaiah 53 verse 6 says, All we like sheep have gone astray. We've ran everyone 
to his own way. Romans 3, verse 10, which is really the universal indictment of mankind because of their sin. It says in verse 10, there is none righteous, no, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. Again, this is the state of mankind. Dead in sin. And sin truly is irrational. Filled with such folly. Adam and Eve really demonstrate this clearly by the very fact that imagining they could hide from God. For no one can hide from God. We know this is clear. Scripture makes this clear. Proverbs 5.20, verse 21 says, The ways of man are before the eyes of God. Proverbs 15.3 says, The eyes of the Lord are in every place, keeping watch over the evil and the good. Psalm 139 says, God is omnipresent, and he's all-knowing. Nobody can hide from God. But the sinful think they're really clever think they can outwit and outsmart God. And this is what Adam and Eve do, showing how deceived they become, showing their foolishness, showing really the completeness of their fall and how lost now they have become. Thankfully, the story doesn't end there. Thankfully, there is more. Because our God has arrived. And our God responds. He says to the man very simply, but very clearly and authoritatively, where are you? Where are you? God first addresses the man because he bears the greater responsibility. In light of his role, in light of his position of leadership, God calls out, to the man, where are you? This really serves as a reminder for us as men who are leaders of our home, fathers and husbands, that if there's problems within your home, if there's issues, and if God was to come knocking, he's asking for you. He's looking for you to hold you accountable. God calls to the man. And he asks the man a question. And he asked a question not because God lacked knowledge, specifically of where they were. For God knows all things, 1 John 3.20 tells us. Hebrews 4.13 also adds, there is no creature hidden from his sight. This was a question not to gain information. But rather, his question served as a probe. To prompt the man that he consider fully what he has done. This question is to elicit a confession of the man's wrongdoing. So reconciliation can come. For reconciliation can only occur if the transgression is confessed. Don't miss what is happening here. Because remember what Satan told the woman? His implications, that God is unloving, he's unkind, he's too strict, even he's a liar. Accusations that the woman believed. But what we see here in verse 8, 
is the complete opposite of what God was accused of. For God is shown here to be kind, caring, a loving father who is seeking out his own. As man and woman are seeking to avoid God, God is seeking them. As man and woman are hiding from God, God is pursuing them. Please do not miss this. Because this is the clear testimony of Scripture. That God is the great seeker. God is the one who pursues us. For we don't seek after God. Romans 3.11 Remember, it says there's none who seek after God. Yes, we may seek things from God, blessings, rewards, benefits, but we don't seek after the person of God. Scripture is abundantly clear that he is the one who seeks. Remember what Jesus said in Luke 19.10? The Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which is lost. Apart from God's seeking, Apart from his sovereign grace, you would still be hiding. You would still be running from God. In love with your sin. Remaining in darkness. But by his mercy, by his grace, we are saved. We are delivered by his gracious pursuit and placed in a union with Christ. 1 Corinthians 1.30 says, but by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus. Not your doing, but of Christ is doing his doing, you are in Christ Jesus. Oh, my brothers and sisters, what a merciful God we serve, right? An amazing God we serve. This is why God raises this question to Adam. So that Adam could respond with a confession God is displaying exactly who he is like, unlike the lies painted by Satan. He's making it clear. God pursues the couple. And he asks the man a question. So verse 10, Adam responds and he explains why he hid. He said he was afraid because of the realization of his nakedness which this realization did show, shame. It showed guilt was present. He said he was fearful because he did not want to appear before God with his nakedness. Do not misunderstand this. This is not a clean nor full confession of sin. Yes, he admits his shame, his fear. That's motivated by his guilt. That's clear. We see that. For shame and fear, they grow out of sin. But this is not a true confession. This is not godly sorrow. Because he doesn't reveal how he knows he's naked. He doesn't disclose the reason. So in verse 11, God continues this probe, this examination, by raising two more questions. God said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree which I commanded you not to eat? These two follow-up questions really drive to the heart of the matter. Both, of course, are rhetorical questions. 
And similar to verse 9, they're here to give the man an opportunity to admit his sin. Asking forgiveness. The Lord is giving this man another opportunity to confess. The first question draws out how Adam knows he's naked. This points to the fact that something must have occurred. Something happened to make you aware of this. So what caused this? How is this known to you? For this is a true guilt. It's not a false guilt. God makes that evident. But how do you know this? The next question is a very direct question. It's putting Adam on the stand to give a clear response of what he has done. What Adam needs to do now is to confess. Admit that he deliberately disobeyed God from eating from the tree that was forbidden. Specifically, God refers to it as the tree I commanded you not to eat from. Do you notice there's a title change there from Genesis 2, where he refers to it as the tree of knowledge of good good and evil. But now he changes it and says, the tree I commanded you not to eat from. Is this what you did? Adam needs to confess, repent, that this shame is the result of his defiance of God's command. So what does Adam do? What's his response? Look at verse 12. We see Adam responds to these clear, direct questions. And instead of responding with a plea to be forgiven, a plea to have mercy, a plea for grace, he responds with a despicable excuse. He blames the woman. He says, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me from the tree and I ate. He says it's the woman's fault. Every wife is laughing and smiling. She is the true offender. This is her doing. I simply took what she gave me. She's the guilty one here. It's on her. Fortunately, us husbands, we can relate to that. All of us can relate to the blame game. About seven years ago, I was driving home with Amanda from my mother's house. It was late at night, and I missed the on-ramp to get on the freeway. So I'm frustrated at this point, irritated, definitely falling into a sinful anger. And I'm trying to find a way to turn back around so I can get on the freeway. And I can't find anything. And Amanda says, hey, there's a left turn there. You can do it. But I sort of begin to question it. Second guess it, but I say, I'll do it anyways. And I take the turn really broad, really wide, going too fast, drive straight into a ditch. And the car became wedged right in. So the car was actually fine, apart from the cops making fun of me. But I drive in there. But my first response after this happens is not, Sweetie, are you, are you okay? Is, are, is everything okay? We're, we're okay. The car's fine. Ugh, I am so sorry for this. It was, you told me to turn. You told me to make the left-hand turn. And then she looks at me, are you kidding me, Adam? But this is what Adam does. 
he blames the woman. Remember at the end of Genesis 2, when God brings the woman to the man. Remember Adam breaks out in poetry. He celebrates the arrival of his wife. He's ecstatic. He's thrilled. Now look what he's doing. Now he's condemning the presence of his wife. Putting the ownership of the infraction on her. Which, yes, she was responsible. But Adam failed to lead her. He failed to protect her. Once again, he is failing to care for her now. Putting the blame on her. This is utterly shameful. But what's even more shameful, what's even more sad than this, is who Adam also blames. Because he doesn't just blame the woman. He doesn't stop there. Because he clearly, in fact, by implication, blames God. He says, the woman whom you gave to be with me. He shifts the blame also to God. Charging God with this crime. Saying to God, you're responsible too. Because you gave her to me, this dangerous creature. Like the woman, you're guilty as well. Adam should be worshiping God. Falling down before him. Instead, he's pointing the finger at God. This is the insanity of sin. For unconfessed sin hardens the heart. It warps reality. Causes you to blame everybody else for your sin. And again, we're all guilty of this. We are so quick to blame others. So quick to blame our husbands, our wives, our children, our friends and say, it's their fault. In our heart, we are so prone to self-justification, self-favoring. But with everybody else, how dare they? It's condemnation towards others. We're so prone to blame, even to the point that we all can fall prey to blaming God. Anytime you have a discontent heart, you are pointing the finger at the sovereignty of God. His providence. This is what Adam does. And how wicked and evil this is. At the end of verse 12, though, we see Adam does finally admit that he did eat from the tree. He simply says, I ate. Almost as if it's a footnote. A side note. Because after all the excuses... All the blame shifting, he finally states, yeah, well, yeah, I did eat the fruit. After he presents all these qualifiers, gives his defense, oh, yeah, by the way, yeah, I did eat. This is not a true confession. For a true confession of sin never blames. It never makes excuses. It never gives a defense. It never justifies its actions. It never says but, maybe, or if. It takes full ownership of sin. 
and simply cries to God for mercy. A clear example of this is found in Luke chapter 18. In the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. The, ta- the Pharisee goes first. We see his self-righteous prayer. Then the tax collector comes up. Look what he says in verse 13. But the tax collector standing some distance away was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven. But was beating his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. That's confession. That's godly sorrow. That's what Adam should have done. Verse 13, God now turns to the woman. This is, in fact, the first time we see the God and the woman dialoguing. The Lord confronts the woman to explain herself. He says, what is this you have done? This language of this question is strong, and it's to press home really the magnitude and the severity of her actions. But this question is also given for the same purpose as it was for Adam. To elicit a confession. So she can respond with repentance. Look at what she says. The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. The woman responds by claiming to be deceived by the serpent and then she ate. Which this is true. And she's very straightforward about it, much more straightforward than Adam was. But this deception does not negate her guilt. It doesn't take it away. It doesn't mean that she is innocent because she still disobeyed, which she needed to confess for reconciliation to take place. But like Adam, she also shifts the blame. She follows her husband's response by pointing somewhere other than herself, claiming it's the serpent's fault. She's not taking full ownership here. Again, like Adam, she's not taking full ownership of her sin. This is not a true confession. You see how sin, how instantly sin has filled their hearts? How quickly It has spread. This is the tragic reality of sin. And how it separates us from God. How we run from God and how we blame God. I want to close by looking at verses 14 and 15. And we're going to just skim the surface of this. Very, very quickly and just make one observation. Because we'll look at this in detail next Sunday. But just one observation. The Lord now turns to the serpent. And the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you will go and dust you will eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. We see God now turns his attention to the serpent, which again is Satan. And notice what is missing, what is absent with his words to the serpent. But words 
that were present with Adam and Eve. And that is questions. Questions are missing with regards to the serpent. This is rather significant. Because the questions, remember, given to Adam and to Eve were for the purpose of confession. To acknowledge and repent of their sin. This is absent as he addresses Satan. They're not there. There's no questions given. What's the reason for this? Why is this omitted? Well, it's clear. Because there is no redemption for Satan. There is no redemption for fallen angels. Fallen angels will never receive salvation, but only condemnation. Scripture makes this clear. 2 Peter 2, 4. Jude 6. Matthew 25, verse 41. It's eternal fire. Chains of darkness that is permanently reserved for them. That's why God offers no questions for a confession of sin, but rather only statements of judgment. There was no reason to ask the serpent a question. No reason at all. Because there's no chance for salvation. There's no hope for Satan and his followers. No redemption. But for Adam and Eve, their descendants, us, there is hope. There is redemption. There is salvation to those who turn to the Savior. To those who do what 1 John 1 9 says if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's the great news of the gospel that your sins can be forgiven. If you've not yet turned to the Savior, Confess your sin. Repent. Stop blaming and turn to the blameless one who died for you, who gave his life for you. Receive the Savior. For us who have done that by God's grace, rejoice. Celebrate, for he has sought us out. And though we may be weighed down by our sin, beat up, well, we don't feel like celebrating. What is there to celebrate? I constantly keep falling into these same sins, and sin is repeated again and again. Even in spite of all of that, remember his grace. Remember his saving grace. Remember his transforming grace. John Newton said this so well. He said, I am not what I ought to be. I am not what I want to be. I am not what I hope to be in another world. But still, I am not what I once used to be. And by the grace of God, I am what I am. That's our confession. By the grace of God, we are what we are. What a marvelous Savior What a marvelous God we know and whom we can worship and whom even though it's hot, it's muggy, it's sticky, 
We have beasts of flies coming after us, many serpents. Yet by his grace, we are here. Because God has shed abroad his love in our hearts. That it is our desire to want to worship him and praise him, even in these conditions. Amen? Well, there's still a lot to cover in Genesis. We still got to look at the curses. We got to look at these divine oracles of judgment. And then we also need to look at the departure, the exile from the garden. So I pray next week you come and join us as we'll continue our study in Genesis 3. Let's pray. Lord, you are so good, so kind, patient, and loving. Lord, may we not forget that. May we not forget, Lord, what your word says about who you are. May we embrace you. May we marvel at you. May we worship you with our hearts. Not merely just with our words, but Lord, with our whole self, our whole person. May we worship God who is the Savior. God, we love you. We praise you in your name. Amen.